2: In London, this is The Economist, with Tasting Menu, some of the tastiest selections from this week's coverage. I'm Anne McElvoy, and I lead Economist Radio. On the menu this week, the surprising success of landlocked Paraguay. Portland pops up in Tokyo, and the joys of grammar that people all know, but don't know that they know. But first, the low-rate world was our cover line this week. With the global economy lagging, central banks have been driving down interest rates to try to pep up demand. Now they need help, as our cover leader argued.
1: During the financial crisis, the Federal Reserve and other central banks were hailed for their actions. By slashing rates and printing money to buy bonds, they stopped a shock from becoming a depression.
2: But now their signature policy of keeping interest rates low has been taking some flack.
1: A growing chorus of critics... Frets about the effects of the low rate world, a topsy turvy place where savers are charged a fee, where the yields on a large fraction of rich world government debt come with a minus sign and where central banks matter more than markets in deciding how capital is allocated.
2: To live safely with low rates, our leader urged the world to move on from its unhealthy dependence on central banks.
1: Structural reforms to increase underlying growth rates have a vital role, but their effects materialise only slowly, and economies need succour now. The most urgent priority is to enlist fiscal policy – The main tool for fighting recessions has to shift from central banks to governments.
2: Back in the heady days of the 1960s and 70s, this was the policy of choice, but it had its drawbacks.
1: The problem was that politicians were good at cutting taxes and increasing spending to boost the economy but hopeless at reversing course when such a boost was no longer needed.
2: And fiscal stimulus became a byword for an ever bigger state.
1: The task today is to find a form of fiscal policy that can revive the economy in the bad times without entrenching government in the good.
2: If you want to read more about what that would entail and our briefing analysing the widening impact of the low-rate world, pick up this week's issue or head to our website. As we considered how not to slip back into historical mistakes, in our America's section this week, we found a country whose future looks set to be a rather surprising success. Landlocked, sparsely populated and peppered with wilderness, Paraguay
0: doesn't have it easy. But it seems to be faring well, as our article explained. Though outsiders still think of it, if they think of it at all, as a cheap bazaar and weird haven for fugitive Nazis... Paraguay is becoming a modern country.
2: Indeed, with its neighbour Brazil in recession, it's coping rather better than many in the region.
0: Its GDP grew by 6.2% year-on-year in the second quarter of 2016. It will expand by around 3% this year and next, forecasts the IMF. That would place it in the top tier among South American economies. Recovering commodity prices are expected to help, but some of the success is self-administered. Instead of just farming and flogging cut-price goods to tourists, the country is starting to manufacture things. Its own consumers are shopping more. And the burgeoning country is adopting cultural changes too. Shopping centres, blocks of flats and hotels are springing up in Asuncion, the once sleepy capital. Its residents are imbibing less Terrere, a traditional cold drink made from the yerba mate plant, and more lattes in new European-style cafes.
2: As Paraguayans bask in success and enjoy the taste of foreign cultural imports, we move through to our Asia section, where it seems Japan has been adopting a little overseas lifestyle too. An article explained how the American city of Portland has been popping up right over
0: the Pacific. Lanette Federich knew that people in Portland, Oregon were obsessed with the tacky carpet at the city's airport. Enraptured hipsters snap up everything from mouse pads to underpants, emblazoned with its dated 1980s design.
2: And all of you economist-reading hipsters out there can take a look at it in our issue too. What she didn't know, however, was that it's popular in
0: Japan as well. Miss Friedrich is the founder of CycleDog, a company which sells dog collars, leads and other paraphernalia made from recycled bicycle parts – She was visiting Tokyo to participate in the third annual Portland Pop-Up, at which Tokyoites can buy goods from Portland and learn about Portland's way of life. But Portlandia trinkets aren't the only ones translating well in Tokyo. Many eateries in Portland, rather than expanding in America have decided to leap across the Pacific.
2: According to the author of a Japanese-language guidebook to the city, it's not just the food or fashions Tokyoites are yearning for, but Portland's ideology,
0: or... Future vision, a combination of individualism, enterprise and greenery. For those who chafe at Japan's stale economy and hidebound culture, the image of young creative types knitting old inner tubes into dog collars before cracking open a local brew holds great allure.
2: Embracing ideals in a globalised world can lead to success, and our Money Talks podcast this week explored the potential for Europe to borrow a little innovative spark from Silicon Valley. Europe isn't seen as a tech powerhouse, but one German firm, Rocket, is trying to change that. But Berlin's tech scene primed to produce a Google or a Facebook of its own. Adam Roberts, our business and finance correspondent, surveyed the
0: landscape. Sadly, Rocket is not going to be. And in effect, it was a, a copycat platform. It, it built some good individual holding companies. There's an online clothing company called Zalando that does rather well. There are some online uh, efforts in places like Nigeria and India and Russia um, but they've actually been struggling. It's quite hard to, to make a lot of money with this model. And back at the beginning of September, Rocket announced that it was actually writing down the value of, of many of its holdings. And Rocket itself is having to rethink the model of what it does to become more of an investor and much less of a company builder.
2: With European tech firms still stuck snapping at the heels of their American counterparts, we hop over to our finance section to visit Norway it's struggling with the unusual problem of being so far financially ahead. Two decades after the government paid a deposit into its sovereign wealth fund, the country is grappling with how best to manage it. Now it's grown
3: to be the largest in the world. The vehicle, which is used to invest abroad the proceeds of Norway's oil and gas sales, has amassed a bigger fortune than anyone expected, thanks to bumper oil prices. This week, the pension fund Global was worth 7.3 trillion Norwegian kroner. That's $882 billion, more than double national GDP. And it has its fingers in quite a few wealth-generating pies. It owns more than 2% of all listed shares in Europe and over 1% globally. Its largest holdings are in Alphabet, Apple, Microsoft and Nestle among 9,000-odd firms in 78 countries. Norway got a lot right at the fund's inception. It is run frugally and transparently. Every investment it makes is detailed online. But with great power comes great responsibility, and the fund has had to change with the times. The fund has been instructed by Parliament to help fight climate change. So 1% of its portfolio is in firms deemed to be green. That kind of restriction creates investment dilemmas. The fund still invests in oil, for example. Royal Dutch Shell is one of its biggest holdings. Its ethical advisers argue that it can achieve more by promoting good practices within oil firms. But a former adviser admits the fund's climate change brief makes such investments a paradox. From the predicament of Norway's hefty fund, we move to a delicate dilemma
2: in archaeology. Many ancient scrolls are now too fragile to unroll, leaving their invaluable contents unread. But new digital techniques could read inside even burnt ones without touching them. In Babbage, our science and technology podcast, Jason Palmer and Dr Brent Seals explained how the mysteries
0: were unravelled. The algorithms his team used have no easy task. They must work out, from a series of swirling shapes in the 3D model, how to distinguish between layers, and then look for variations in density within them. That correlates with the ink that makes up the ancient letters. And the one they unfurled turned out to be well worth the effort. This scroll is the Bible. It is the first and second chapters of the book of Leviticus in partial form. I think there are quite a few examples of ancient materials that fall into this category.
2: Our Babbage show there, it's published each Wednesday, and all of our podcasts are available to download on iTunes or Acast to listen to at your leisure. From creating concealed ancient texts, we turn to intrinsic knowledge hidden in plain sight. Our final taste of this week's issue is from our books and arts section, where Johnson, our columnist on all things linguistic, mused over the prevalence of pedantry. Yet this isn't just a particularly pernickety section of the population. It seems most people don't even know that they know most of the grammar they, well, know.
3: Who can say what order should be used to list adjectives in English? Mark Forsyth in The Elements of Eloquence describes it as opinion, size, age, shape, colour, origin, material, purpose and then noun. Do keep up, but an example might help. You could have... A lovely little old rectangular green French silver whittling knife... But if you mess with that word order in the slightest, you'll sound like a maniac. Knowing this grammatical nugget delighted people all over the internet. Linguists have uncovered a trove of similar, widely known but secret rules. For example, a question can be formed from a statement by turning the questioned element into a question word, like where, and moving it to the front of a sentence. So, Steve went to Toronto becomes, where did Steve go, but... That doesn't work when the element in question is itself a clause. In John wonders where Steve went to university, went can't become where does John wonder that Steve went to university? Everyone knows that the latter is awkward or even unacceptable but very few people outside the world of linguistics know why.
2: Conversely, those pernickety linguists take umbrage at the rules
3: people are most vocal about, but which aren't actually observed. Take the so-called rule against ending sentences with a preposition. In fact, saying things like, What are you talking about? is deeply embedded in the grammar of English. About what are you talking? strikes real speakers of English as absurd. And Johnson revelled in the fact that this intricate, implicit knowledge caused such a stir. It is cheering to see that things like the adjective order rule can go viral on social media. Perhaps it can make people more likely to associate grammar not with drudgery, but with fascinating self-discovery. And I,
2: for one, completely agree about what he's talking. I'm Anne McElvoy. That was our tasting menu, highly grammatical. Do let us know your thoughts via email to radio at Economist.com or on Twitter at Economist Radio. And don't forget to rate our podcasts too. In London, this is The Economist. The Economist.